Hello and welcome. We are here for more Empty Nest Decluttering. This is Messy Nest Magic, Season 4, Episode 17. This is our intensive month of June 2021. I hope you are enjoying it and I hope it's serving you in some way. Self-care always comes first. In the past 24 hours, have you done what you need to do to keep yourself well looked after? Food, shelter, rest, drinking enough water, moving enough. It's very hot here where I am, so moving enough means moving very little today. Trying to keep cool today is part of self-care. So whatever you need, if you need more time to bring yourself up to a level where you feel comfortable, please turn off this audio and do whatever you need to do and come back when you're ready. Thank you. In today's email, I mention taking some time to reflect about how this month is going for you. And I want to make it clear yet again that no matter how you are doing, you will not hurt my feelings. Some people are very engaged for the whole month. Some people are kind of dropping in and out. And some people start and then leave. All of those are fine. It's Um, gratifying to me when people do whatever they do mindfully even if it means quitting and quitting in this instance is not a bad word I, I do not say that in a negative sense at all if you do it mindfully it means you've said hey I have other calls on my time or I have other uh places I'd rather put my emotional energy that's all good. We all have lives going on, and whatever is your conscious choice, I'm totally in favor of. What I am pushing back against, at least a little bit, is coasting, avoiding choice, being uh, pushed rather than driving yourself. Sometimes we can't help that, but if you have the choice, to be mindful, it's usually your better course of action. So I invite you to just think about that. Um, I do care that you are here, but I also do not, um, what do I say? I don't um, mind, I I don't take it personally at all if you come and go. But I would really like to think that you are doing it mindfully. I hope you're getting something out of this month. I hope it's moving you in a direction that is helpful and constructive. It remains to be seen because we are only two-thirds of the way through the month. But my fingers are crossed for you and my toes are crossed for you too.
If you are a very attentive and clever listener, you are going to notice that I make a mistake in the next segment when I'm talking about black pens. So uh, forgive me, but I say something about the first black pen where I should have just said a black pen. And if you don't notice it, yay for me. If you do notice it, then you'll uh, kindly overlook it. I'm sorry, I couldn't edit it with my limited grasp of technology. So let's just roll on with no further ado. I want to talk a bit about museums and archives and what we can learn from them in excuse me, in a nutshell. So museums are the community storehouses of material culture. They define their missions in different ways, but very often it has to do with preservation, education, interpretation, and it is usually grounded in physical things. There is a whole world of intangible cultural heritage as well, where the physical things are not the basis. But if we just think about your average run-of-the-mill museum, it's all about the stuff, the physical things. And physical things require resources. They require a place to be housed. They require people to look after them. They may require maintenance. Even a fossil might need to be dusted now and then. It needs to be kept in an appropriate spot where it's not at risk from damage. And of course, some things are much more delicate and require climate-controlled, you know, well-guarded environments. So collecting stuff is not necessarily an, an occupation that museums go into lightly. A well-run museum has to have a collection policy. And part of a collection policy is often also a retention and deaccessioning policy. So not only do they have a policy on what and how they will collect things, but they also have policies on how they will release things when they are surplus to needs. So our homes are not museums, but we can learn from the idea of a collection policy. What am I keeping and why? And how does this fit with my personal collection policy? If it interests you, go ahead and, and uh, look it up on the internet, collection policy for accredited museums, as opposed to just random museums, because anybody can start an organization and call it a museum, but accreditation by whatever body might be um, relevant usually implies some standards. And one of the very important standards is having a written collection policy that is adhered to. And usually a collection policy will say something about the mission of the museum. What history or what aspect of uh, the world does the museum exist to uh, interpret, collect, preserve, share? So in your family life, in your individual life, what aspect or aspects of the world do the things that you want to collect or hold on to 
reflect. Why? It's a bigger piece of your why. One of the helpful tools in the museum world, and it's it's a little different in archives, but at a general level, it's, it's similar. So I'll come to archives in a moment. But in the museum world, there's a concept called significance. And objects are collected because of their significance. There are different uh, explanations and criteria for determining significance. So it does depend, you know, which set of criteria you like the best. But some of the things that make an object significant are an association with a particularly notable person or event. Now, notable is dependent on the context. What is notable to a 19th century farm community in Ohio may not be notable to someone living above the Arctic Circle in Alaska. Or it may be, because maybe that farm was the grandparents of the person in Alaska. So the context is really important, but the concept is, what are your criteria for deciding whether something is significant in your personal collection of items? Significance is um, a step along the way to selecting things that are representative. So, for example, sometimes I talk about black pens and how many of them I find in my home. <laughs> now, it may be, I bet you that there is a museum, and there's probably more than one, that has a black pen in its collection. And the reason for the black pen being there could be it was the first black pen ever used to write on the moon, or it was a black pen owned by President John F. Kennedy, or it is the first example of a mass manufactured consumer item. Lots of reasons a black pen might end up in a museum. But one of those reasons that I just gave as, as an example is because it's representative. It's representative of pens manufactured in such and such a time and place. So it's not uh, that that particular pen was written by a president or landed on the moon. It's that it's typical of its class. And this is where we can use a museum and archives concept to help with decluttering. It's this idea of selecting something that is representative. Archives and museums both do this. So in your own uh, home, if you are thinking that you need to reduce the volume of things you own, one way to look at this is what is a representative of a class of items where I no longer want to keep them all, but I wouldn't mind having one or two. We do this all the time. Uh, we just don't think of it in such formal terms as I'm explaining. But what if the class of items was, hmm, maybe the class of items is children's drawings from kindergarten. Now, maybe you don't have any of those lying around anymore, but uh, I think the example is pretty clear. You don't need to keep 100% of them. If they are more or less 
typical examples of the child's development at that age, then pick one or two favorites and, you know, maybe photograph the rest or maybe not. Uh, even if you, uh, even if you feel compelled to keep one, you may, you may decide that you don't even want to keep one and that's fine too. But sometimes it's hard to not keep them all. And that is where the idea of picking representative items come from. Could be, uh, you know, my dad had a lovely collection of cufflinks that I used to play with as a kid. <laughs> I don't know what became of them, but if I had one set of them now, that would be a lovely representative of a category of items, and it would make me smile to see it. Now I smile at the memory, and I'm okay with that too. So. Picking a representative item can help you let go of all the other items in that category. And going back to our sanctuary and our growing inventory of things, are you noticing things that could be clustered together and perhaps released because you can be happy with just a representative? rather than all the items. Obviously, if something is part of a formal set, you'll want to keep the set together. But maybe that whole set is something that can leave your possession if you've got something that's representative. So for example, if you have a lot of things you inherited from your grandmother and you for whatever reason, you simply cannot or don't want to keep them anymore. That's fine. They can go into the world and bring joy to other people. And maybe all you need to keep are one or two representative things. It's totally your choice. And of course, it can be very emotional. And I am never saying you must get rid of anything in particular except garbage. I always say you should get rid of garbage. But use the tool of picking representative items to release the other items in that category. So if you're finding things you are keeping for the same reason over and over and over again, that does suggest a category of things. So to take it from the sentimental realm back to one of our other common reasons, which is useful items, it's really easy to see that in useful items, how many measuring cups do you need? How many pillowcases do you need? Picking the representative items in the useful category is pretty easy because you can assess what your needs are for your size of household and, and for your own daily activities. Another concept from museums is provenance. And I think you will hear me talk about this some more. But for today, I'd just like to mention that things with stories, things with known histories, have a greater intrinsic value and possibly a greater actual dollar value than things without known stories. Please don't try to take me too literally at this when it comes to the dollar value. It is true that provenance affects value, but when we're talking about routine items, I don't want to make you think that 
there's some magic way to build up the dollar value of them by telling their stories. But intrinsically, there certainly is. So if something is uh, being given away with its story, the recipient has a choice of what to do with that story. When it is a family member or even uh, a friend or community member, they may not preserve the story, but they may appreciate hearing it when they first get the item. Provenance does matter, and it also helps us release items. And this is a topic for another night, but I'm, well, another day perhaps. Uh, what I'm going to say is that think about how the stuff and the story are two sides of the same coin. And sometimes the reason we have difficulty letting go of things is because we haven't finished the story. We need to tell the story. We need to preserve the story. It doesn't always mean we need to preserve the object. I mentioned this when I was speaking about the, the files from my dad just yesterday. And I'm going to come back to this because I do believe that the stories are a big part of why we keep sentimental objects. And by telling the stories, appreciating the stories, sharing the stories, preserving the stories, we may be able to release objects that in and of themselves don't have a compelling reason to be held on to. That's a thought for you. And I've told you a lot of things about museums. So I think that's enough for now. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for being here, and I'll see you soon. Bye now.